We are about to uh, open up our Bibles. So if you need a, a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. I want every person in our church to have a Bible in their lap. Um, we believe that Jesus reveals himself through his word. And um, I don't want you just to take my words for it. I want you to see what I see in his word. So we're going to be in um, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 26. Oh, I'm sorry, 28 to 36. We're not reading backwards. That doesn't make any sense. Let me read it, pray, and we'll dive in. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. God, in some ways... um, Every time we open up your word, it's our goal, it's our aim, it's our hope that we would be ascending that mountain. That you'd show us something of your glory. God, as we open the ancient book, we believe that the eternal Christ Stands forth. I'm praying today, this morning, whether we got foggy minds because of daylight savings time or not, you would speak, you would pierce through the fog, you'd be seen, you'd be heard. And your people would be sustained. God, come and do these things. Things only you can do. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Um, Let me begin with a quick question. Uh, How do you respond uh, to suffering? Um. We know 
that suffering is a given, that it's coming for us. Christian, non-Christian alike, suffering is coming. But how do you respond to it? It seems to me that God says fundamentally there really are two basic ways to approach it, to respond. You got on the one hand the way of the world, and then you have on the other hand the way of the Christian, the way of Christ. For the world, when suffering comes, it seems to me that we're going to do essentially anything we can at whatever the cost to alleviate, get rid of, avoid it, push it back. If a circumstance is causing the suffering, maybe you lost your job, car broke down, something happened. Some circumstance, well, what are you going to do? You're going to lay awake in your bed, thinking, planning, doing everything you can. No rest until that circumstantial problem is fixed. You don't have time to be generous. You don't have time to think about anyone else. You kick into survival mode, and it's all about you. And you cannot get off of it until whatever is causing the suffering has been alleviated. Or maybe another person's causing this suffering in your life. And so what do you do? Well, you you kick into fight or flight mode, right? Either I am going to hit you back and make you hurt the way you make me hurt, or I'm going to pull away and so cut you off That I'll never have to deal with you again. But either way, the cause of this suffering has been dealt with swiftly. I don't like it. I don't want it. Get it out of here (laughs) at whatever cost. Maybe, and for many of us, even currently, I know this is an issue. If it's health, right? Suffering comes in from our skin. We cause our own suffering with our bodies as they decay and fall apart and give way to illness or whatever it may be. And so what do we do? What's the way of the world? We're going to pour all of our money (laughs) into the doctors, into the medicine, something, something, someone that can help. And if we finally reach the point where we know it's not going to get any better, well, then maybe we just give ourselves to the bottle, give ourselves to the needle, give ourselves to the pill. At least we'll be numb and minimize our suffering. I'm not saying necessarily that trying to alleviate suffering is wrong. Not at all. Certainly the heart underneath it is where I'm after. I'm just trying to get us to think here for a moment. How do we respond? Is it alleviated at whatever cost? No rest until it's gone. No peace, no joy, no generosity or love for others until I can figure this out for me. 
That's largely the way the world responds to suffering. That's not what Jesus holds out for the Christian. For the Christian, Jesus says our approach has to be different. While we don't needlessly run towards suffering, we don't run from it either. We don't have like a bent towards, yeah, hit me again. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we're not afraid to get hit. It doesn't surprise us. We're not afraid of it. We kind of even expect it. I mean, as we follow behind Jesus, we know what he says. This whole Christian life, this discipleship thing begins with taking up my cross, following him. It doesn't sound so nice. So if we've counted that cost and taken up that cross, we're not surprised when suffering comes. And we're not scrambling to self-save at whatever cost. We're actually able to trust our Savior through it, in it. And so here's the crazy thing. Rather than in the face of hardship, rather than spiraling off into anxiety or, or bitterness or vengeance, or anger or addiction or depression, we are, according to Jesus, supposed to be able to actually bear fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, love, joy. Even in that space. The question that this sermon is aiming to answer is how? How in the world does that happen? How do we suffer what you might call Christianly? How are we sustained in our cross-bearing? How are we enabled in our fruit-producing? How does this whole thing work? Because I'll tell you something, if you're anything like me, you hear what I just said and you go, Man, that's not how I typically respond to suffering. I look like the world. I look like the guy scrambling at whatever cost to save himself. Even if it means cutting you off or, or getting you know, in front of someone else in line to get what I need, whether it's food or medicine or something, fix me. I want to be more... Like Jesus, I want to be more, as he says, I ought to be when suffering comes. So again, the question is, how? How? Now, I think that our text actually answers this question this morning. Um, but you'll, you'll only see this if you're seeing it in light of the context. It's one of the reasons why I want you to have a physical Bible, not just your Bible app, okay, but a physical Bible in your lap. Because I have found that, you know, in your little screen on your, your phone, you can see about that much. And that's great if you're trying to memorize a verse or something. But, but largely interpretation, the scriptures, is in view of a, lar- of a larger context. And I have found, I guess you scrolling up and down, you get lost, you don't see what I'm about to show you. So, it's in light of the context 
that I think uh, the proper interpretation of the Mount of Transfiguration uh, can be found. And it's in light of the context that I think you'll see why I'm pointing to this Mount of Transfiguration scene in this text as the answer to this question I'm asking, how? How are we sustained in our cross-bearing and fruit-producing, even when it's hard? If you noticed, our text begins there in verse 28 with this. Now about eight days After these sayings. You hear that? Luke wants us immediately to connect what's about to happen with these sayings that came before. And so the question that we therefore then have to answer is, well, what are these sayings to which Luke is referring to? Well, so you go back. And here's what we remember. Uh, It's been a few weeks now, so hopefully you still remember. Maybe you don't. But Jesus just got done dropping two massive bombshells on his disciples. Okay? Two massive bombshells that would have just shattered their worldview and left them in pieces. Uh, Back in verses 21 to 22, here's bombshell number one. The Christ, he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. This was a category buster for the disciples. That's not what the Christ does. Christ wins. He doesn't die. He's not rejected. The Christ is going to bear a cross. Bombshell number one. Bombshell number two, these sayings that preceded number two, verses 23 to 27. We see not only is the Christ going to bear a cross. We see that anyone who wants to be his disciple will bear one as well. You're going to lose your life for his sake. That if you want to follow him, you take up your cross daily to do so. So. Needless to say, I think the morale at this point among Jesus' followers would have been at an all-time low. Okay, This was a bad day to be Jesus' disciple. I mean, we have put in all our chips on this guy, and now he's telling us he's going to die, and we're going to die with him. Can I get off the boat? I don't want this anymore. I didn't sign up for this. I thought kingdom, right hand, this is going to be great. Now I'm seeing cross and cross. How do I get out? <laughs> I wonder if you've ever felt like that personally. You sign up to follow Jesus, the early days. Man, you see, you can walk into a church, you see the, the smiles, and everyone seems happy and filled with joy. You go, this looks great. I'll turn from sin. I'll, 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 I'll believe in Jesus. i got great expectations. Here's my list of what I hope he's going to do in my life. And then things get hard. In fact, things maybe even get worse. And God didn't sign up for this. What do you do then? Well, that's why, this is why God gives us the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a sneak preview of the glory to come 
And it's a word of assurance intended to sustain us in the suffering we will endure on the way to glory. Did you hear that? The Mount of Transfiguration is a sneak preview of the glory to come and a word of assurance intended to sustain us in the suffering we must endure along the way. So though following Jesus is going to be hard, its end is glory. The disciples needed to see this. We need to see this. So two things this morning then. God gives us here uh, as a way of sustaining us in our suffering on our way to glory. Two things. One, a vision. Two, a voice. Let's dive in. When it comes to a vision, um, let me again lead us back to the context to help us better understand it. Uh, I did not deal with this phrase um, three weeks or so ago when I actually taught on this text because I knew it was going to serve as a bridge into this one. But back in verses 26 to 27, this starts to set up what we're actually seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus as he's... um, basically radiant before his disciples. Um, You might remember this there in verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he what? Comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He goes on and he says this, but I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, commentators don't necessarily know exactly what to do with that last part. You get confused. But here's here's what's essentially being said, and I'll show you my interpretation of it. Jesus is talking about coming in his glory. He's talking, in other words, about the second coming, the return. He's talking about when he establishes his kingdom in full on the earth. And then all of a sudden he says, and quick side note, let me give you this confusing little enigmatic little phrase. Uh, Some of you standing here are actually going to see a little bit of that glory before they even die, before that day even really comes. How does that work? They're going to see his second coming. The disciples are all dead. Jesus ain't returned. I think the clue, again, is in how Luke will move from this, uh, these sayings to the Mount of Transfiguration, where what happens? Some of those disciples standing here, as he was saying those things, namely Peter, John, James, called up the mountain, where what? They see Christ in his glory. Before they died and before the second coming was really ever and the kingdom was really ever established. It's as if, again, I call it a sneak preview of the coming glory. It's as if God kind of draws the curtains back for a moment and says, this is what's in store. For Jesus, for those who follow him, this is where God is taking you will the cross that christ has to bear test your faith yes 
Will the cross that you have to bear bring you to an end of yourself? Will it be hard? Yes. But will the story end in shame and suffering and death? No. Let me draw the curtains back and give you a vision of the coming glory. This is where God is taking you. In other words, he gives them a vision of future glory to sustain them in present distress. Now, I want to consider the vision of future glory here in a bit more detail. Um, The description of Jesus at this point is quite remarkable. I'm just going to look first at verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Man, just a quick side note. Again, Luke always mentions prayer as the thing that moves the story of God forward. And I just I had a whole section on this. We've talked about it too many times. But I just wanted to ask, is prayer what moves your story forward? Because it's what moves Jesus' story forward. As he was praying, he goes up on the mountain to do what? To pray. That's when all the stuff goes down. And every watershed moment in his life is marked by prayer. His father. What a radical idea for us here in Silicon Valley to begin on our knees before we hit our and you know, hit the street with our feet, right? Anyways, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. With regard to his face, uh, Matthew would say, um, even uh, in a more kind of fuller, more illustrative way, uh, that his face shone like the sun. That's Matthew 17.2. Shone like the sun. With regard to his clothes, the word that Luke chooses here, uh, translated as dazzling white in our text, literally means that his clothes were bright as like the flash of lightning. So you got the sun in all its glory, you got lightning flashing. This guy's, Jesus is way better than any Marvel character. I just picture this thing about the flash for some reason. I'm sorry. He is way more of a hero than those guys ever will be. But I love what Mark describes uh, with his clothing. He says this in Mark 9.3 when he's talking about the same scene. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Did you hear that? Isn't that cool? If you've ever fought with a stain and tried to bleach things out, you can get it only so white, right? As white as you can. But you're not getting Jesus Christ radiant. And what this is saying is, man, this is not a glory that comes from the earth. Nobody could bleach something this white. This is a glory from God. This is a glory from heaven. And it's coming, it's breaking out from the Savior in these moments. They see it. The idea, again, is this. Though the Son of Man will soon be shrouded in shadow. I mean, literally on the cross, Matthew tells us that the sky goes dark from noon to three. 
the high point, the brightest point of the day. It's dark on the cross. And what we're seeing in the Mount of Transfiguration is though he will soon be in Jerusalem, shrouded in shadow, and though we, disciples, as we follow behind him, will also find ourselves in darkness, the meaning of of the Mount of Transfiguration is that that is not the end of the story for us. That's not where this thing falls out. Christ and his people, their inheritance will be light and glory. Let me read to you Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Listen to what Paul says. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is where God is taking you. That's what he's showing his disciples in these moments. It's going to end with the dawn of a new day. Not death and decay. Now, as we continue on in this vision, it occurred to me in my preparation that there really is absolutely no way for me to do justice to all the the connections and the the glory that is present in this little text. Um, I considered just blowing it out into a full-on sermon series like I often do, uh, but instead I opted just to give you some brief things here. But here's the reality. Every word almost in in what we're about to look at, these next few verses, this vision that, that God gives his disciples, Every word is electric. The intertextuality, in other words, the way it connects to the Old Testament and all the anticipations, all the promises, all the promises, all that stuff, the way it connects is overwhelming. There's no way for me to bring it all out. It's like you touch that word and all of a sudden a text in Deuteronomy lights up. You touch this word and all of a sudden a text in Isaiah lights up. You touch that word, all of a sudden a text back in the book of Exodus lights up. And on and on and on. I'll show you a little bit of that. But hopefully I just kind of whet your appetite. Maybe you go dig a little deeper if you're interested on your own. Let me, let me show you some of this. I just want, to, want you to start to see the glory of your Savior, your Rescuer. The first thing... To note would be what uh, Luke says there in in verses 30 in the first part of 31, where uh, in the midst of this radiant Christ scene, what we see is, behold, two men were talking with him. Namely, Moses and Elijah, who Luke tells us appeared in glory. Moses and Elijah are in this vision there with Jesus. Now, why these two? What is their uh, significance in the tradition of Israel? Well, we can bring out a number of things. Let me give you a few. For one thing, Moses stands as the uh, chief representative of the law, really. It was to him that God delivered the law, right, on Mount Sinai. He brings it down to the people. They're already worshiping the golden calf, throws it against the ground, goes back up, gets another one. But the law was given to Moses. He stands as a representative of the law. Well, Elijah, on the other hand, could stand as a chief representative of the prophets, right? He was a prophet of God. 
standing for God when a lot of the people in Israel were turning to idols. So here's the idea then. Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the, the two basic fundamental kind of divisions of Old Testament revelation, law and prophets, find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Jesus himself would say this in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. So we start to get a sense that Jesus is standing as the fulfillment of all that Moses, Elijah, law, prophet stood for. But there's more we could say about Moses and Elijah. Moses is the one that God used essentially to, to establish Israel as a people, as a nation. He was the one that led them out of Egypt, the one that uh, brought them in the law for their nation and, and established Yahweh as their God. One God of this people. So Moses stands at the beginning of the nation and the people of Israel. And Elijah, on the other hand, is the one that's prophesied to come at the very end. The Old Testament ends with this note in Malachi just kind of left lingering in the air as people go, you know, wonder when is the Messiah going to come? When is God going to come? This is how it ends with this word about Elijah who will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Malachi 4.5. So Moses stands at the beginning, Elijah stands at the end. Well, what do we see then here with Jesus standing with these two? <laughs> Jesus himself would say it in Revelation. I think it's uh, 22.13. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last, the beginning in the end, everything Moses and Elijah stood for pointed to Christ. One last thing we could say on these two. Moses, this, this was an interesting thought for me. Moses, you remember how he leaves this world? It's not, it, it's kind of like this major letdown. Like if you... If you ended a movie the way that his life in the, in the Torah ends, <laughs> no one would go see it. Moses, the star of the show, basically, ends up dying outside of the land. He strikes the rock, he disobeys God. God says, okay, great, you're going to see the promised land that you've been leading these people to for all these years, but you're not going to go in. You're going to die outside the land. And that's the end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. What about Elijah? Elijah, on the other hand, never dies. He leaves this world in a way perhaps more glorious than anyone else ever did. And chariots of fire, a whirlwind carrying up to heaven. Well, what's going on as Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus? Well, I think one of the things we could draw is that Jesus is going to even be kind of this, this fulfillment of, of, of what their departure stood for. Namely, Jesus will die outside the land, outside the gate. The author of Hebrews would say, for the sins of his people. He'll die outside the gate. 
where you take cursed things, sinful things, dirty things, but he also will rise and ascend, never to die again. Now, let's keep going in these verses. I'll show you a little bit more. I'm going to move even faster. What are Moses and Elijah doing here with Jesus? Luke tells us that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, the word translated departure here is the Greek word exodos. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to know how that word is used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament. The Exodus. So what are Moses and Elijah talking about? The Exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish or fulfill in Jerusalem. In other words, here's another just text that's lighting up from the Old Testament. All that the Exodus stood for is now fulfilled in Christ and what he's going to do. You remember, God brought his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. Through what? The Passover lamb, the sacrifice, the blood. Well, now in Jerusalem, God is going to bring his people out of bondage to Satan, sin and death. The ultimate slavery through what? The precious blood of the lamb. Keep going. When the disciples wake up from sleep, Peter offers to make tents. Verse 33. Now, again, this Greek word used in the Greek Old Testament for the word tabernacle. Tabernacle. Now, when you take that with what comes next, namely that there is this glory cloud of God, we see in verse 34, that overshadowed the people. That same constellation of words shows up in Exodus 40, 34, and 35, or maybe, I think that's right. I wrote it wrong here. But Exodus 40, the very end of the book, when the glory cloud of God overshadows the people as they finish the erection of the temple. I'm sorry, the tabernacle. And so what do we draw from this? Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle and temple stood for. He is the tabernacling of God with man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We're seeing all this in these little verses, but it goes on because then God himself speaks out from the cloud. And this is what he says. Every word is rich with meaning. I will not do any justice to it, but I'll show it to you quickly. I'm probably already losing most of you. (laughs) God first says, verse 35, this is my son. Recall Psalm 2-7 which shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic hope, the hope for a king who would come and sit on the throne of David forever. It's him. He's here. And he goes on with the voice there in verse 35, my chosen one, this is my son, my chosen one. This word lights up a text back in Isaiah 42, verse 1, showing Jesus to be the servant of God. The one who in Isaiah 53, we know, is the suffering servant. The one whose wounds would heal the sickness of his people. The one who would be crushed for the sins of you and I. 
is my son, my chosen one. Finally, God says from the cloud, listen to him. A clear recalling of Deuteronomy 18, 15, showing Jesus to be the prophet that Moses said would arise. A prophet like him would come. This is the actual text. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God, this is near Moses' departure. He's going to leave them and they're all freaked out. What's going to happen? He says this. Don't worry. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God gets him up on the mountain and says, let's bring a few of you up here. Here he is. Listen to him. All of this is brought to one grand finale when in verse 36 we read this. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. You you catch this? Man, it was incredible. The amount of things in that little, in that space and the vision that they're shown, just one little vision, the amount of stuff there, and yet what was it all pointing to? Every line in Scripture, every promise, every prophecy, every symbol, every foreshadow, every hope, every line converging uh, in one person, Jesus was found alone. It's like God just gathered up the whole Old Testament and said, it's all fulfilled in Him. Everything. The question then is, I know you're asking it. You might not say it. The question is, so what? (laughs) So what? I thought we're talking about my suffering and my cross-bearing, Nick. How does seeing Jesus like that help me? So what? Well, I hope you see it. God is showing us here on this mountain that if we trust, if we hope in Jesus, our hope is not in vain. That's what he's trying to show these disciples. There are going to come times where you're going to think, man, putting your chips in on Jesus was a bad bet. But he gives them this vision. No, no, no. Listen, everything I ever said, all my plans, all my problems, everything finds its fulfillment in him. Your story is tied to his. That's why he's come. He didn't just come to show off. He came to rescue A people, you and I, and his destiny is ours. Our future is tied to his. And as we hope in him, we are seeing here, our hope is not in vain. Sneak preview of coming glory. Paul himself would say it in Romans 8, 29, 30, where he says, listen, God predestined him. God chose the Son to be the firstborn among many brothers. That we are to be conformed into His image. That uh, we have now been called justified and in Him also glorified. 
His image is what God is conforming us into. His glory will be ours. This is the end of our story. So it's not a waste of time to see how awesome Jesus is. It's what sustains us in the hardship and the trial through our own cross-bearing. This is where God is taking us. No more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more separation anxiety. We will behold God. We will see His glory. We will even participate in it. I love that text. Um, Jesus says these words at the end of his parable with the talents, you know, and he's talking about what it's going to be like on that last day for his disciples. And he says, you remember this? He says, man, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into what? Enter into the joy of your master. Like that's the end of the story. The joy of God becomes ours. And so it's as if God and Jesus are kind of drawing up the disciples here and us to see this glory. So that their hope is not derailed when they also see him laying lifeless on a cross. They know that a kingdom is being established. They know that there's glory at the end of this for him and for all who trust in him. Again, the vision of future glory sustains us in our present distress but and if you're worried this point will be much quicker god gives us more than just a vision here on this mountain he gives us a voice i'm not talking about your voice finding your voice i'm not talking even about god's voice the voice coming out from the cloud. I'm actually talking about the voice of Christ. I wonder if you notice Jesus, or I'm sorry, God, the Father, direct us to the Son here in verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, what? Listen to Him. So this voice of the Father directs His disciples to the voice of the Son. Listen to him and the question now we need to ask is why why is that where this whole vision ends well i think it's just that because the vision is going to end the vision of glory the vision of what's to come it's not yet and god knows (laughs) we're going to have to come down from this mountain That there is a cross that Christ will have to bear before that day will ever come. So Elijah and Moses, they're going to depart. The glory cloud, it's going to dissipate. The radiant face and clothing of Christ is going to return to normal. He's going to look like a humble peasant again. From little old Nazareth, walking the dusty roads towards Jerusalem. They're going to have to come down from the Mount of Transfiguration to what you might call the Valley of Demons. The text that immediately follows ours. You want to know what they're doing? Facing demons. Peter 
sees this vision and wants to stay, right? And that's the heart, that's the longing of our heart. That's kind of the world's way. When we hear about suffering, we say what Peter said to Jesus uh, in Matthew's account just a few verses before the Mount of Transfiguration. Namely, no, that will never happen to you. You will not bear a cross. No. But when we see glory and great things, we say, yes, let's stay here. Peter says, man, don't leave Moses and Elijah. Let's hang out. Let's keep the party rolling. I don't want to go back to suffering and that talk of cross stuff. This is where it's at. We're not there yet. Everything packs up and leaves. The mountaintop vision gives way. And what do you have left? What do you have with you in the valley? When the vision is faded, you have the voice of Christ. You have the voice of the one whose glory you know, but you might not see it in full right now. You remember this, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, on this side of heaven, our call is to walk, what? Not by sight, but by faith. And Paul would tell us later in Romans, how, how do we get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith in? Well, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the what? Word of Christ. So, Here's the reality. There are times where we are going to see amazing things of God and feel like we're on the mountaintop and feel like He just drew the curtains back and we see glory. And there are times where we feel like we are in the valley and all we have is His Word. And though, man, it doesn't even seem like He's going to act on that Word, we trust Him in the midst of it. And we hold. We have the vision, we have the voice, and I think both of these things merge for us in the Bible. We weren't there on the Mount of Transfiguration with these guys. We're going, ah, Peter, you got a, you know, Peter, James, John, you guys got an unfair advantage. I'm telling you, I don't, I don't think so. In fact, Peter recounts this later, and he kind of says the same thing. He says, "You have the word." Like a lamp shining in a dark place. You have the Bible. And I think in the Bible, we get both sometimes vision of coming glory, and other times voice, a word to hold to in the darkness when all else seems like, like it's falling apart. As we come to our Bibles, God sometimes gives us a vision of his glory. That's why Paul would say, when we hear the gospel, sometimes the veil is pulled back and we see in the face of Christ the glory of God. It's as if the, 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 the ink and the paper, from the ink and the paper, a radiant face shines forth. You've had moments like that, I assume, mountaintop moments where God just lights up Scripture and your eyes see and your heart is inflamed. You go, no way, how could He love me? And this is what He's got in store for me. I can't believe it. And then there are other times where your eyes feel dim, your heart feels cold, you come to some of the same verses and you see nothing. You feel nothing. But you have a word, like the author of Hebrews says, like an anchor for your soul. 
goes back, goes, goes forward through the veil, holds there, and you hold on to that. Vision and a voice. We have it because we have the Bible. Now, I want to close by showing you how this sort of thing plays out. I'm just going to read you something I wrote and we'll end here. Because I want to show you how this vision and voice, the vision of coming glory and a voice speaking in the valley, coming to us through the Bible. I'm going to show you how this sustains you in your suffering, how it sustains you in your cross-bearing and enables your your fruit-producing. And I could have picked any, um, you know, different kind of suffering. We could have talked about, you know, the circumstances, or we could have talked about interpersonal relationships and abuse, or people getting angry, and how the vision and voice would sustain you there. But I thought, let's just take suffering to its logical end, namely death. The last enemy, as Paul would call it. And let's, say, let's ask, how does the vision and, and, and voice of Christ Sustain us there. And get us through even death. In a Christian way. Let me read this to you. So there you are. In your hospital bed. Pale. Feeble. Left bald from the seemingly endless rounds of chemo. Your body aches as if someone took a mallet to you in the night. The pain has settled so deeply now, it feels as if your very bones have begun to rot. When the tumor presses a nerve just right, a fire is lit on the inside. You burn in places no water could ever reach. It hurts just to exist. Outside your room, you can hear the now rare sound of children chattering. A family must have visited their loved one down the hall, and they're now on their way back to the car. You hear the moans from the patient in the room next door. Her pain meds have worn off again. The nurses scramble to her aid. The window in your room mocks you. Through the glass, you see a world you will never take part in again. The blue of the sky, the green of the trees, the red of the garden rose, every color dims to gray. You know, you can feel it. You're not going to beat this cancer. Tears fill your eyes, as they do now many times a day. It feels as if death has come for you 20 years too early. You still had so much you wanted to do, so much you wanted to see, so much you wanted to experience. But the God who has numbered your days is almost through counting. Like the last grains of sand slipping through the hourglass, they are coming to an end. And oh, how you're tempted to question and doubt, even scream in the face of the one who would permit, ordain such tragedies for you. On your low days, you do scream. Why me? Why now? How could you? Where are you? Are you even there at all? But on other days, when grace and the Spirit prevail, 
Though your hands are too frail to hold a Bible and though your eyes are too dim to make out words on a page, you ask your spouse or your daughter or your pastor or your nurse to open the ancient book and read. And while they read, you catch vision once more of the glory of Christ. And you hear yet again the very voice of your Savior. You hear of the Son not left in the grave. When everyone thought it was over, things had only just begun. God raised him never to die again. And he says he's gone to prepare a place for you, even you. And all your sorrow will soon turn to joy. You hear the pages turn from the Gospel of John to the book of Revelation. And now you hear of angels around the throne singing. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are joining in. You are in that number. You're not there yet, but you're there. The curtain is pulled back and you see where God is taking you. One final promise your friend wants to read. It's a word of hope for the valley. You cling to it with all you have. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And somewhere in the midst of all this, though your body still lay curled in a hospital bed, you find fresh strength of heart to pick up your cross this day as well and follow your Savior through shadow lands to paradise. There is peace, there is joy, there is love. The vision and the voice sustain. I think that's the point of the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's pray. God, help us. God, help us to see you and to hear you. God, I pray that your people would experience times where you take them up the mountaintop and your word and you just unveil your glory. And I pray that when you hide your face for whatever reason, and when things feel hard, when we descend back into the valley, I pray that you would give them your voice, your word, and it would anchor them. And I pray you'd sustain us in our suffering. I pray you'd sustain us. Because we will. We will face it. I don't want to shrug off my cross in those moments. I want to hold to my Savior. Would you hold on to us? It's in your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.